Good morning, in town. It's good to see all of you this morning. Um, I say see all of you. You all can see me much better than I can see you because I am not part of the uh, Blues Brothers up here. Um, but that is okay. Very, very grateful for that. Um, we've been in a series over the last couple of weeks about the book of Ruth. And if you're not familiar with that story or haven't been with us, I want to catch you up really quick on where we are in the story. There was a man and a woman, and they have two sons. They are Israelites, which means they are a part of the people of God. But unfortunately, being Israelites, they are Israelites at a very, very bad time in life. Two reasons, actually. Number one, they are Israelites at the time of the judges, during the the book of Judges, the events of the book of Judges, which means that they're a part of a time of anarchy, of uncertainty, of faithlessness often. It's, it's not a pretty picture. On top of that, there's a great famine in the land, so much so that this man and this woman and their two sons have to pick up and make the difficult decision to go all the way to enemy territory in Moab. There they set up a life. Eventually, the two sons will marry two Moabite women, But unfortunately, the man will die, and then tragedy will follow them, and both of the sons will die as well, leaving a woman and her two widowed daughters-in-law. Now, she can do nothing for them. She's too old to have any more sons. She lives in a foreign land. She doesn't own any property. So she does the most loving thing she can do for them, which is to release them from her family and from her family obligations. One of the two uh, daughters-in-law takes this offer tearfully. She does love her mother-in-law very much. But the other one, Ruth, something's different. She has been so taken by her mother-in-law, Naomi, and not just that, but transformed by Naomi's God, that she says, I will never leave you. She covenantally binds herself to Naomi, and they together travel back to Israel. And that's where we start here in Ruth chapter 2. Jim, would you read for us? The reading this morning is from Ruth chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, and then 17 through 23. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done. For your mother-in-law, since the death of your husband, has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, you, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So she gleaned in the field until evening, 
Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth, the Moabite, said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat seasons, harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, this is your word. This is the story of your people. This is ultimately our story. And so we thank you, Lord God, for allowing us to live in this great story, which is yours, and to learn from those who have walked it before us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. So key to this story, if you picked up on that language, is the word gleaning. Let's talk about what gleaning is for a minute. If you've kind of tried to work through a, an Old Testament, New Testament Bible reading plan or something like that, you probably have hit the Old Testament law at some point in your life. And it was difficult. Um, the Old Testament law is a, is a fascinating series of documents and yet also is, is strange because it's a very, very different way of thinking to how we live our life today. Many of those laws seem to make very, very little sense. Some of them are very ceremonial in nature. Others of them, you know, I I love shrimp. You know, there's there's issues there. Um, But those are actually mostly meant simply to set apart the nation of Israel from the wider culture. However, some of the laws also are quite practical in nature. And the reason for them is because Israel wasn't just supposed to be set apart as different than the other nations. In many respects, Israel was supposed to be the embodiment of the foretaste of the coming of God. What it was going to look like one day, what it will still look like, praise God, one day when Jesus returns. It was supposed to be the embodiment of a place that is filled with people who have been transformed by God and what it looks like for them to apply what God has and is doing in their lives to every corner of their life. So there are lots of laws that we might not think about them, but actually had grave consequences for changing the way they lived. Something as simple as a Sabbath. Believe it or not, here in America, I mean, the, the idea of Sabbath, while traditionally is still widely accepted to some degree, is actually pretty crazy. You know, if you live in a society that prizes wealth and comfort and efficiency, 
And then you tell people, I want you to give up your day off or your day to get stuff done. That, that doesn't work out too well. And it didn't work out too well in that day either. Israel was committing to trust God and not be as efficient as they could have been. There are other laws, many that dictate different ways of life, such as farming, which would have been most people as Israel was an agrarian society, an agricultural society. One of these laws is the laws of having to do with gleaning, and they're actually mentioned three different times in the books of the law. What gleaning was, was if you were a farmer, and let's not just say a farmer like a worker, but like somebody who owned a plot of land, and had people work that plot of land, what you would have been called to do by God would have been to not harvest completely 100% efficiently to the edges of your field. In the same way, when you actually sent the harvesters through the field, which would have been two waves of people, a wave of men with sickles who would have been chopping and leaving piles of grain, and then a wave of women right after who have been quickly bundling and setting those things aside, you wouldn't have sent another team through to pick up everything that the first wave missed. The reason for these two things is this is how the law provided for the foreigner, for the poor, and for the widow, the people in society who couldn't own land and who couldn't come up with any other way of making a living for themselves. So whether that was a traveler who's literally walking by your field and pulls an apple off the tree and eats it so that they can be full, or like Ruth, somebody who during harvest season is working hard to follow behind the workers and pick up the straps you've missed, the poor, the widow, the foreigner could could be full without worrying about the legality of getting a full belly. It was a big deal. And it's what's happening here in this entire chapter. Ruth, at the very beginning of the chapter, tells Naomi that she's going to go out and glean. Now, because technically gleaning is the law, she has no idea where she's going. She's just going to find a field and start gleaning because legally she's allowed to do that. Now, providentially, we know God leads her, not to just any old field, but to this this man, Boaz, who's a man who is both rich in money and in character and happens to be a relative of them. Ruth works super hard all, all the way through to early afternoon. And at some point, she even, the, the text seems to imply she even desires of the foreman of this field that, that she might get get to glean even better, maybe get a little bit closer to the group, maybe be able to uh, accumulate a little bit more because she's gleaning for two people, right? And then Boaz shows up, greets the men with a blessing, and he asks his foreman who this woman is. Foreman tells her it's, it's Ruth, and he already knows the story of the long-lost relative Naomi who has returned from Moab and this strange woman who's followed her. And this begins a beautiful pattern through the rest of the chapter of Boaz heaping blessing upon increasing blessing on Ruth. He allows Ruth to to eat and drink with him and his men and women. He dignifies her so much so that she's blown away. 
He effectively gives her a job. He says, don't glean anywhere else. Glean with my women and like stay super close such that you're pretty much just working with them. So much so that as we read, she's going to go home and see Naomi and Naomi's going to freak out because she is going to bring so much home in one day that it is the equivalent of over two weeks worth of wages. You know, imagine what would happen if you came home one day and you told your spouse, today I made half my month's salary in one day. That's pretty exciting. That would be even more exciting if you didn't have a job and you told your spouse that anyway. (laughs) Here's the trick, though. A couple of weeks ago, Jimmy... uh, introduced a a made-up word that is wonderful and is, as only Jimmy can, the Disneyfication of the book of Ruth. Jimmy uh, introduced this idea that unfortunately we can commonly misread the story of Ruth. And we misread it in part because whether consciously or unconsciously, we are used to seeing stories like the book of Ruth as primarily a love story as a story of a a courtship, a relationship between Ruth and Boaz. Spoilers, they get married. But there's a problem with that. I mean, you can imagine, right? Like we've been conditioned to think that Boaz shows up, he's hardworking, he's doing his job, maybe he's on his horse, and suddenly he looks over and he sees this young woman, Ruth, working in the fields, and she looks up and their eyes lock And there's a great ground swelling of music and we have two long lost soulmates who have met one another. But if you have that picture in your head, consciously or unconsciously, then you end up interpreting everything else that Boaz does in this chapter as increasing courtship rituals, as ways of trying to get the girl. I mean, even ways of trying to impress the girl's mom so that he gets the girl. But that's not necessarily what's happening here. We've been using a lot of art in this series as well. And if you turn on the back of your bulletin, mostly because we don't have slides here in the sun, this is Portrait of a Woman as Ruth by Francisco Hayes. It's around the 19th century. He was an Italian painter. It's, it's a beautiful painting. But it actually kind of portrays this exact layer of reasoning, and it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Ruth here, yeah, she's got the grain there, but she's dressed in a very, like, Romanesque way. She's aesthetically beautiful. She's, she's almost seductive in a way. This, seem, this is seemingly everything we've been talking about here, and this was how Hayes pictured Ruth, but I want you to look at the quote next to it. I've been chewing on a book for a while, not really based on this sermon, but just due to a couple of the things, uh, people that I've gotten to interact with in my own life, um, by a historian and sociologist named Nancy Eisenberg. It's called White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. Listen to this. First known as waste people, and later white trash, marginalized Americans were stigmatized for their inability to be productive, to own property, or to produce healthy and upwardly mobile children, the sense of uplift on which the American dream is predicated. 
The American solution to poverty and social backwardness was not what we might expect. Well into the 20th century, expulsion and even sterilization sounded rational to those who wished to reduce the burden of loser people on the larger economy. I don't know what Ruth looked like. None of us do. And I don't want to disparage the woman's attractiveness or beauty or dignity by any means, but, but think about it for a second. Ruth is a poor woman who is starving. She is likely emaciated and not in great health. She has lived a life that has been filled, at least somewhat recently, with great tragedy. And on top of this, she is a Moabite. The entire country has a reason to hate her simply for who she is. As she is working these fields, she is likely coming in contact every day with people for whom her people murdered and pillaged. This girl is not attractive for an Israelite. Boaz's kindness to her in this story, his compassion, his mercy, his graciousness to her, is not first and foremost because we're in a Disney movie and he's just met Snow White. It's literally built into who Boaz is. And and you see it because of his business. You see it because of how he greets his workers. You see it in that Ruth already gleans for hours and hours in his field before he ever shows up. In fact, as I was studying this, you know, I've read this book a hundred times and something stuck out to me for the first time. I'll be honest, I was kind of ashamed that it was uh, the first time that I'd noticed this. But again, it's back in verse 8 and 9, right what Jim started reading. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Back up a second. Isn't Israel supposed to be the foretaste of the kingdom of God? Isn't this supposed to be a good place? for foreigners and for widows and for poor people to be because literally the law has built in ways of taking care of them. Why on earth would Ruth be worried or Boaz be worried that had Ruth ended up in any other field, she might actually be in danger? What is going on in Israel? I mean, this is the sad reality. This is the book of Ruth, but we could be talking about the end of Judges. And if you know what I'm talking about, the end of Rudges does not look pretty for a certain young woman. This could have been a story of assault and tragedy and pain and death. But it's not. And it's not because Boaz isn't just himself a man who has been transformed by God, but he has also allowed what has happened inside of him to so permeate people he's hired and the way he's trained them and the way he's set up his business and the way he's not idolizing wealth and efficiency and effectiveness such that being compassionate, being merciful, literally being a conduit for the loving kindness of God is simply a part of who he is. That's Boaz. 
This is ultimately not a story of a love between a woman and a man. It's a story of the love of a God for a woman who loves her so much that he teams her up with a man who he has transformed and loves so much. And thus there is great blessing. So what's this mean for you and me? If this story tells us that the people of God are one of, if not the primary means of showing God's loving kindness, his chesed, and ultimately because we're on this side of the cross, the story of Jesus with the world, well, this is our story. We are a part of that lineage. This is our inheritance. We get to be the vessels of God's loving kindness for this world. And so I think in the same way as Boaz, we have to ask these questions. If I'm supposed to be that vessel of loving kindness for Jesus to show the world how awesome he is, can I maybe start at the personal, as many of us do, but can I actually go beyond it as well? Can I think about what it means to allow what God has done to transform me to literally infect every area of my life? Can I think about what it means to be a vessel of loving kindness at my business? You know, for most of us, right, especially as kind of where we are in America and our feel and Southern hospitality and all that, we know you don't want to be a jerk at the office. Nobody wants to be that person. I mean, literally, there are, there are Harvard studies. Harvard's been doing this for 20 years. They've been studying ethically mindful businesses because they've found that businesses that are a little bit more ethically good and a little bit more socially conscious actually make more money than those that don't. But what the text is calling us for is whether or not it's effective or efficient or more helpful, that's not our God. Our God is Jesus. And when Jesus infects every area of our life, then we build our lives around the idea of having margin, of having ability, of having just a a compassionate, you know, lever, a compassionate gear that the moment God brings somebody in our life, we don't have to do this massive wrestling with ourselves about whether or not we're going to be kind and gracious and loving to people. We don't have to think about, okay, God, this month, you know, have I, have I hit my tax write-offs yet? Have I, um, you know, I, I'm, is my family comfortable enough? And then I've got the little buffer I leave over to be nice to other people so I don't feel guilty about it. No, instead, it is so permeated who we are that we don't care about being comfortable at the level that all of our neighbors do. We don't care about being successful at the level that all of our peers do. Now, God's going to call us to be lots of different things, and God has called people in history to be incredibly successful and effective of what they do. Don't hear me wrong, but... What would it be like if we were a people for whom, if that happened, praise God, we have more opportunities to be God's vessel of loving kindness to the world? Ruth is a story of someone who doesn't deserve God, 
who does not connect with her Prince Charming, but rather with another person who does not deserve God. But God loves them deeply. Now, there is something in Scripture, as we close, uh, called the indicative versus the imperative principle. Some of you guys have heard this before, but indicative just means, you know, what is true, what's true about God, what's true about you, what's true about the world. And an imperative is a command. It's an exhortation. It's a go do this. Now, because culturally we are who we are, we assume indicatives and we gravitate like crazy on those imperatives. We hear very often out of a sermon like this, in town, go be better. Go rethink again. That's not what we're hearing. It's not what we should be hearing. This is why you don't divorce scripture from itself. Chapter one is all about God's unbridled mercy towards you. This does not mean chapter two forgets chapter one and says, now you better go work really, really hard. This is out of an overflow of the great mercy of God that has been worked in us through Jesus that we're able to do this. I'm not telling you tomorrow to go blow stuff up in your business, in your life. To be honest, what I want you to do is I want you to think and I want you to pray. And I want you to be in community with one another, with people who can, like iron sharpening iron, help you think about what it does mean to allow Jesus to overcome the levees that our culture builds up that says, I can have a spiritual box and a moral box and a hardworking business person box and a social box. And those boxes have to play nice enough together that they look pretty on the shelf together, but they don't actually have to bleed into each other. Let God go into all of these spaces. I know there's some examples I'm thinking about. I start with uh, my struggles with homeless people on the side of the road, what to do. But as I think about the complexities of that, I need to be thinking, no, not just about, hey, how do I deal with my own guilt when I'm literally looking at a $1,000 iPhone and someone is asking me for something through my window. But I need to be thinking about what it means to learn about my city that I've now lived in for four years and why these people are the way they are and how I can love them and dignify them. I need to think about, you know, do I treat some of these people who are not losers at all? And yet, as Eisenberg said, in my own sinfulness, I might think, man, it would be more convenient in my life if they just didn't exist. I don't know who those people are for you. A server who's trying really, really hard, but it's a really, really hard job. The individuals who come and clean your house or your business or cut your lawn. Relatives. The ones you don't talk about. I don't know. But I know this. In this story, the great leveler is not the love that Ruth and Boaz have together. It's not a shining man who finds a woman and picks her up. It's not an amazing woman who blows a man away. It's a God who loves people. He loves you. 
then he loves me so much. And that compels us to be different in this world.